0: Hey there, travelers. I'm Isabella. I'm Riley.
1: I'm Angelica.
0: And this is True Crime International. Uh, before we get started today, travelers, just a quick reminder: this is our last episode before we head off for our summer vacation. The big summer hiatus. Get some rest, recoup, prepare for uh, season, season two. two. Season two. Season
2: two of True Crime International.
0: Remember, if you're on our Patreon, uh, you you will still get everything that you are paying for. You still still get your three episodes a month. Uh, if you're going to miss us during the summer, you can just pop on over to the Patreon because we've got a backlog and we'll still upload over there. But we just need a bit of a break. Relax. Spend some time with family. Spend some time together because I'll be back in, in the country. So, yeah. Heck and we'll yeah. be back in September for our regularly scheduled programming. Yeah.
1: And keep an eye on the social media because... We will be having, like, an episode or two here and there. It's just not going to be our frequent deal.
2: Yeah, there'll
0: be surprise drops. Yeah. And
2: surprise. still keep an eye on our social media because, especially in our Facebook group, we've been doing a lot of chatting and laughing about memes and such. We'll so, probably um, do some
1: get-to-know-yous yeah. on our um, Instagram, maybe a Heck live. Yeah.
0: <laughs> maybe a live to, <laughs> to have,
1: like, five people join that all know us. A live, red <laughs> live red eye friends live red eye that's dangerous <laughs> it, it's probably it would just probably be us drunk talking to you guys
2: yeah pretty much
1: that's gonna be what it is because there's a time limit and i feel like if it ends in the middle of a case that'd be bad
2: <laughs> oh yeah Rip. so on that note isabella where are you taking us today on our
1: last case
0: I know. I went big for this one. This is the longest case I've ever written. This script is eleven pages. Normally, that mine are about six. Um, I went ham. So, our two power parters weren't even that long. Yeah. Yeah. I went. I went ham today. So, but I wanted like this is our season finale. I don't take this lightly. Um. (laughs) So we're headed to Iran to talk about an enormous chain of politically motivated murders. That happened in the country between the 80s and the 90s. Now, before I start, I just want to make a huge disclaimer. We are Westerners talking about Iran, and that is a very difficult line to walk on. Um, In the West, we are only fed negative things about Iran, especially in the U.S. since our governments have a very shitty relationship, Uh, but the operative word there is governments. There are tons of reasons to criticize both the U.S. and Iranian governments, and today we will be criticizing slivers of the iranian government but only the things that are universally bad uh but please know that it doesn't come from a place of hate people are not governments culture is not political and neither are human rights and that's where our criticism will be coming from today talking about iran is so difficult and honestly it shouldn't be like it's the result of decades of government propaganda and it's just bullshit. we in the west are taught to be afraid of iran because we are only ever told the worst things about the country. So we have this inherently negative opinion of it that justifies any conflicts that may arise. But Iran is so much more than what the Western media shows us. Iran has thousands of years of rich history and culture. So in today's episode, because we are going to be talking about like the revolution, and we are going to be touching on politics and and government stuff i just i I don't want to add to all the negative stuff that we're fed in the west so um i'm gonna be taking um just like we're gonna have some palate cleanses today and i'm gonna drop some little like iran culture knowledge facts on you uh just so we can all learn a little bit about the country and maybe leave this episode with a slightly different perspective if we all leave today with a different perspective on iran i'll be very happy all right that was my disclaimer Um, So that being said, let's start today's episode with some political history in order to put the rest of the story into context. And yes, like I said before, we're going to talk about the revolution. So let's learn the real story of the Iranian revolution, shall we? Alright, just like the troubles that we talked about in my, Northern I- in my Northern Ireland episode, there's a ton of context and nuance in this story. I'm not going to be laying out 100% of all the factors that led to the uprising. If you know a lot about it, or if you're Iranian and you want to share more about it, you can start a conversation on our Facebook page. It is very active right now. It's awesome. And I will happily engage in any civil discussion about history and culture. Like, it's my favorite thing ever. Um, but in its most basic terms, the 1979 revolution's goal was to overthrow Mohammad Reza Shah, the reigning monarch of the time. Mohammad Reza Shah came into power after his father, Reza Shah, abdicated during World War II. These two were quite literally the only two monarchs from this dynasty. This wasn't like a great dynasty that went back centuries. It was just these two dudes.
1: Just, just two dudes.
0: Yeah, just two, like a whole dynasty boiled down to, to two dudes. A very, much less complicated than, like, the UK. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that dynasty um, can't figure it out. <laughs> for sure. Uh, Iran, like, they they have 7,000 years of history, and they've had many, many, yeah. many dynasties. But th- this one, at least, is very simple. Two dudes. Yeah. <laughs> um, Reza Shah came into power by leading a military coup in February 1921. And he was backed by the British, who had been extracting oil in the country for the company that is now known as BP, or British Petroleum. So they backed him to protect their oil interest in the company because they were making money. Reza Shah and then Mohammad Reza Shah both worked to modernize and secularize Iran, which really pissed off the clergy. But we're going to come back to that. After World War II, the British remained invested in Iranian politics. And the country saw a great participation when they democratically, democratically elected a communist prime minister in 1951 who nationalized the oil industry. This made the British uh, none too pleased. And so they enlisted the help of the CIA to overthrow the democratically elected prime minister in 1953. Well, that's not right. Hmm. 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 Democracy? No. 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 They're like, okay, you can have democracy, but not if you elect a communist that nationalizes your oil industry because we want your oil. Then it's not okay. Then then democracy doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, this was actually a conspiracy theory for a long time until the CIA admitted to their involvement in 2013, like 60 years later.
2: Lovely, lovely. Yeah.
0: Pretty on brand, though, not gonna lie.
2: Oh, yeah, for sure.
0: Now, with rising tensions and demonstrations within the country, the Prime Minister resigned and fled Iran. The demonstrations that led to this resignation were largely supported and encouraged by the Islamic clergy, who saw communism as a potential threat to their position in the country's, like, goings-on. And, okay, so quick side note, I'm sure all of you are aware that Iran is an Islamic country. But what you may not know is that it's a Shia country, specifically. Most of the world's Muslims are Sunni, but Iran is one of only two countries that's actually majority Shia. And the basic history behind the divide is that after Prophet Muhammad died, there was a disagreement over who should take his place and become the the caliph, the first caliph. The Sunnis believed that it should have been Abu Bakr, who was Muhammad's close friend, confidant, and student for many, many years, like pretty much since the beginning. And then the Shias believed that it should be Ali, who was Muhammad's closest living relative. Um, I think he was, I think he was Muhammad's cousin and son-in-law. Son-in-law, definitely, and I think also cousin. Abu Bakr was the one that was named as the first caliph after Muhammad's death, and then Ali was the fourth, but the Shias saw this as great injustice and so martyrdom is a really big thing for Shias and they largely see themselves as those who stand up for the poor or the oppressed and fight for the same social justice that Muhammad fought for. for. Obviously there's tons more to this divide, it's very ugly, but that's like the basic historical facts, that's what you need to know. Alright, so back to the revolution and skipping ahead to 1963, the Shah got rid of the Parliament He was like, we don't need this. Just bye. And he instigated what was called the White Revolution, which was a big effort in modernizing the country. The country became pretty urbanized and westernized during this time and introduced a new age that did away with the old powers of the clergy and land-owning classes. And this might seem all fine and well to our Western ears. Not to me. (laughs) Nope. But as we've become well aware in recent decades the Western way of living leads to an awful lot of socioeconomic inequality. Even though the white revolution helped the economy overall, especially with all the money that they were making from oil, the benefits of that change were not distributed evenly. Also, like, places
1: don't need to be westernized to run well. It's, like, so dumb because I'm just, like... We're, we're all supposed to be, like, different. That's the beauty of the world. It's, exactly. There's not one correct way of living. No. So dumb. Fucking Americans. Not not just Americans, but, like...
0: Yeah, yeah. But, like, the, the Western civilization yeah. just competing <laughs> on the rest of the world's business. Yeah. Also, suddenly, there were a ton of well-educated people living in the cities, but there weren't enough jobs to go around for all of them. Uh, improve- also improved technology for things like farming meant that there were even more people that were moving to the cities to look for work where there just wasn't any. And not to mention the change in culture was a lot for some people to handle because, yeah, it would be. Like, suddenly you're expected to change culture that's your culture that's been built on thousands of years. Exactly. That's ridiculous. And on top of all of that, the Shah was just a real piece of shit. He was a total autocrat. He had his own secret police that stamped out dissension. People were being arrested and tortured for speaking out against him. He abolished the only two political parties in the country in 1975, and then replaced them with one political party, which he controlled. It was was oppressive, and people were rightly frustrated. These frustrations and concerns didn't go unseen by all of the powerful people in Iran, though. The Ayatollah Khomeini, the religious leader at the time, and the guy whose face you always see when you're shown, like, scary pictures of the revolution, he openly criticized the government, attacking them for, quote, the rigging of elections and other constitutional abuses, neglect of the poor, and the sale of oil to Israel, unquote. We will come back to him in a bit. Naturally. Cool. But based on all I've said, it's pretty easy to see why people rose up to try and overthrow the government in 1979 and the protests particularly particularly at the beginning what about what i feel like all revolutions in history have been about people felt like they were being oppressed and that the government wasn't looking out for their best interests and they wanted change that's it that's the american revolution the french revolution like that's how revolutions start they didn't set out to establish the government of today The majority of the people that began protesting in late 1978 weren't motivated by Islamic fundamentalism. They wanted better lives and for the Shah to just get the fuck out. They were not happy with the Shah. Religion came in later and it it basically happened like this. Again, these are the basics. There's more details. Just the basics here. So the protests started small, but there was violent pushback from the police who killed some protesters. And people saw this and were angry and then more showed up and then more people were killed and then more showed up and it just kind of happened like that. But as I said before, um, in Shi'ism, which 95% of Iranians adhere to, they revere martyrs and they take social justice very seriously. So as the people saw this physical oppression firsthand, the more Shia Islam was brought into the conversation and the harder people fought. That's... Kind of how it started. Now, when it comes to the rejections of the West and hatred of America, there are a few factors here. So, one, they'd been doing things the Western way and they weren't working out. So, they just didn't like it very much. Two, the Shah went into exile in the US, which really pissed people off. And that's actually what led to the hostage crisis because uh, they were like, hey, give us our Shah back. And the US was like, no. And then that, and so the people were like, okay, well, we're going to hold your people hostage until you give us the shot and then the shot died from cancer in the u.s that's how that'll happen and then okay three yeah it's a it's a whole mess um with the rejection of western slash american culture one woman who participated in the protests summed it up really really well in my opinion she said quote american lifestyles had become imposed as an ideal the ultimate goal americanism was the model American popular culture, books, magazines, film, had swept over our country like a flood. We found ourselves wondering, is there any room for our culture? Unquote.
1: Do you know? I'm sorry, this is really unrelated. But also, slightly. The people who live in the United States just, like, took the word Americans, Mm -hmm. even though it's, like, North America and South America. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And it's not just the United States. Like, that's so typical. And no, this, they just, they and just honestly, took it. It does relate because, no, like, there's not room for other people's culture. That's how we act all the time. We act like yeah. we're the only ones. Not we, because I don't. But
2: there's North America, America. <laughs> South America. Yeah. Yeah. The United States of America is the only Americans.
0: Yeah. Yeah. In. In English, we don't even have a word for people that are from the U.S. Like, if no. you're from England, you're English. If you're from Scotland, you're Scottish. If you're from Spain, you're Spanish, you know? Um, but in Spa- in, the, in the Spanish language, they do have a word for it. Like, they don't call us Americans. They have a word for if you're from the United States. Oh, really? How does Spanish have it, but we don't?
1: Because what is it? Because we are obsessed with being the only
0: ones. Yeah. The word is um, estadounidense. Huh. And that's what I say to people. I say, like, oh, Soy estadounidense. I'm American. Some people huh. will say American, but not really. And I think it's because so many Latin American countries speak Spanish. It makes sense.
1: Yeah. It should be like United States citizens
2: or something. Yeah. But yeah. we like
0: United, uh, a stater or something <laughs> stater. like that.
2: Well, I do. I do say sometimes from the states. Yeah. yeah I say, I say from the states. That's what a yeah. lot of Canadian people say too. They're like, they're from the states. Yeah but then again we're not the only country with states so it's like
0: <laughs> yeah but because it's in our country name i feel like it's okay
2: yeah true because yeah
0: like india has states but it's not in their country name whereas our country's name is the united states of america so like in that case it makes sense
2: i want to be a u.s united
1: where 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 show us this where? unity where?
0: i want where? receipts and so that's basically it for the history lesson like that's what you really need to know the Shah was overthrown and then Khomeini so the Ayatollah the religious leader was able to declare Iran as an Islamic Republic which is what it is today Um, so thank you for sitting through my history lesson so I'm going to give you your first fun Iran fact which is um, a popular way to sweeten your tea in Iran is with rock candy so they just like take a stick of rock candy and put it in their tea and just swirl it around dude that's so cool
2: wait and then if it doesn't if it doesn't
0: dissolve you have a snack
1: i love that i love that too because like you know i really like blueberry coffee from like dunkin donuts and i could put a rock candy blueberry one in my coffee
0: that sounds disgusting
1: yep but it does. you do you man. actually talking it out does sound really gross <laughs> like tea tea, it
0: makes sense but coffee has got such a strong oh my flavor. god you
2: said tea <laughs>
0: yeah tea not coffee darling
2: Anyways.
0: Anyway, there's your palate
2: everything. cleanser.
0: Your first of 3. There's going to be two more, but I really I want to I want to try. I don't even sweeten my tea, but I would with rock candy. That's that that's fantastic. I want to try that. I'm embarrassed.
2: <laughs> I sweeten my tea and coffee with honey.
0: <laughs> okay, so now just because the Shah had been successfully overthrown, that didn't mean everyone got what they wanted, and there were plenty of political dissidents from the very beginning. And with Khomeini now in power, people were hoping that he would listen to them, especially when he proposed the writing of a new constitution. But when the first draft of it was released and the left-leaning pro-democracy groups asked for some changes because they felt it was too conservative, Khomeini simply stated that it was correct and that the constitution would be based, quote, 100% on Islam, unquote. And I'm not here to bash Islam. I'm not here to say that an Islamic state is good or bad. But what is bad is the lack of listening to other people and just being like, no, this is yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. We all need other perspectives.
2: They're quite helpful.
0: Yeah. There are a lot of people that were really happy with this change of power, but there were just as many that weren't and who saw Khomeini as like essentially the clergy version of the Shah. And that's really important to understand. And we're not going to get into all the nuances of the Iranian government. I don't, I don't, we don't have the decades. I'm not Iranian, whatever. But the newly self-appointed Supreme Leader Khomeini just could not handle criticism whatsoever. 1980 to 1988 were the bloodiest years in Iran's 7,000 year history, with countless opposers to Khomeini's government being executed for their dissidents. And the victims in our case today weren't even killed during this time they were killed after also just to clarify they were also they did fight a war in that time with iraq so it wasn't just political dissidents being executed yeah. but yeah anyway so between 1988 and 1998 at least 80 people that we know of at least 80 80 who were political dissidents writers poets translators artists intellectuals there's even a singer in there somewhere were (laughs) openly murdered for their opposition to the government laughs and then takes it back oh my god
2: well you were like a singer thrown in there i was like oh a singer oh my gosh
1: yeah yeah that's fucked
2: yeah and
0: they like these were just these people were open like openly murdered um and they were all connect they were all linked and that's the hence the name the the chain murders um These were different from the political executions ordered by Khomeini because of how they were linked. And also just because of the fact that Khomeini clearly didn't have any problem with executing people that disagreed with him. So the fact that these were happening essentially off the books is very significant. And that's why they're murders, not executions. Um, These murders also, they weren't just happening in Iran but all over the world, from Sweden to Germany to Austria to the US to Cyprus, Turkey, France, Iraq, and Switzerland, and probably more. We will likely never know the extent of it. And the killers, by and large, were as numerous as the victims. And it's still unclear who gave the order to have all these people murdered, though there's quite a lot of finger pointing. Also, Khomeini died in 1988, so it couldn't have been him. Like, maybe he started it, but maybe not. We don't know. I mean, we never will. Now, you're probably thinking, what was the invariable link that connected all of these people? And to answer that question, I'm going to tell you a story that made my palms sweat when I read it. It made me very uncomfortable. Oh, gosh. Okay. In August 1996, a group of Iranian writers were invited to a conference in Armenia, which borders Iran. There were 21 writers of all kinds. They were like journalists, novelists, poets, etc. And they were excited for the chance to to get to go to this conference. So they chartered a bus to take them to the neighboring country by way of the Heron Pass, uh, which is a mountain road. And it's very often covered in mist and mountain roads are very windy, you know. It was a long drive, about 18 hours. So after a few hours on the bus, the passengers started to fall asleep in their seats. And then suddenly, out of nowhere... The bus accelerated hard and headed straight for the edge of a cliff, No, which just jolted everyone awake. And luckily for everyone on the bus, there was a boulder between them and the edge that stopped them from going over.
2: Oh my God. That is like my worst nightmare. Okay. I
1: wish I didn't have something similar like this happen to me, but I did. Jesus. You can tell your story
0: after. Okay. (laughs) Because this isn't over. The bus stopped and everyone got out and they were dazed and confused like they had all just been sleeping and then suddenly like almost went over a cliff like you'd be shaken. The driver approached the passengers and apologized profusely. He was like, I'm sorry, I fell asleep at the wheel. You know, this won't happen again. This is absolutely my fault. And, you know, that's a perfectly reasonable explanation because it was the early hours of the morning. They had been driving for a long time. And so with the initial shock wearing off, they all got back on the bus and hit the road again. But it was only a few minutes later. That the bus took a sharp turn again and headed straight for the cliff at full speed. The driver jumped out of the window, letting the bus race towards the cliff. One passenger, with the reflexes of a damn god, jumped into the driver's seat, yanked the handbrake, and saved all 21 people from heading over the 1,000-foot drop, or 305 meters. This time, when they got off the bus, the nose and front wheel, front wheels were hanging off the edge of the cliff.
2: Oh, my fucking God. I would never get back on a bus again. Nope. nope.
0: Somehow, the driver managed to slip away. But the, ride, the writers weren't alone. On that normally deserted mountain road, there was a group of security officials in plain clothes there waiting for them and watching. The writers were taken to a nearby station where they were detained for a day before being threatened to never speak of the incident of that night, and I don't know what they used to threaten them, but whatever it was it worked. Because they didn't come forward with the story until years later. But it was abundantly clear to them, however, that someone wanted them dead.
2: Yeah. Jeez. My story
1: was not that scary because no one wanted me dead, but when I was in Italy, the bus driver started dozing While we were on the edge of a cliff and it started veering. So everyone just coughed really loudly and he woke up. But I was scared for my life. But this is really fucked up. Like, that bus driver jumped out a fucking window? Like, what the hell? Like, what demented thoughts go through a person's head to do something like that? Like Money. Yeah. Fuck. That's fucked up.
0: The writers were part of a group called the Iranian Writers Association, which had a wide range of members all over the world who actively spoke out against censorship in Iran, and then also just like the Iranian government as well. But they were hardlined on the censorship thing, which makes sense for writers. And this was the thing that linked most of the victims of the chain murders, because most of them were members of the IWA. One former member described the group as, quote, It existed because it had such huge support. We held dinner parties to discuss our ideas behind closed doors. Some were even hosted at my own house. We knew that we were being listened to, but we had no other choice. And that's creepy. Oh, uh, yeah.
1: That's, that is so creepy.
0: <laughs> Despite that knowledge, though. In 1994, they published an open letter signed by 134 members that openly criticized the government and called for a free and open press. This was a major turning point for the group, as a lot of the 134 members that signed that letter died in the following years under mysterious
2: circumstances. Yeah, mysterious. Mysterious, Mysterious, please.
0: Thus making, that like, yeah, the letter was a big deal. And we'll come back to the letter in a bit. I've gotten a bit ahead of myself though, so I'm going to just backtrack. Um, I said before that the chain murders started that we know of in 1988. So, who was the first victim? There's some debate over who it was, but the most accepted theory was that it was Dr. Kasim Sami Kermani. Dr. Kasim Sami Kermani was a physician and novelist who actively took part in the revolution to overthrow the Shah. Before Khomeini had full power of the government, there was a provisional prime minister and Sami served as the minister of health for the very brief time that the prime minister was in power. Even though Sami had left the top government position, he was still very much active in politics and was elected to the parliament in 1982, where he was openly critical of the government, which really pissed off Supreme Leader Khomeini. The thing that's most believed to be what sealed Sami's fate was an open letter that he wrote to Khomeini in 1988, which criticized the leader for not ending the war that they had been fighting with Iraq. And on November 23rd, 1988, Sami was at his medical clinic in Tehran when he was attacked by a man pretending to be a patient. The man struck Sami in the arms, chest, and head with an axe. At at his, at his oh, office. With an axe. Yeah. The man who killed Sammy was later found dead of an apparent suicide, though mm, sus, tis sus. Tis Mm -hmm. incredibly sus.
1: I'm going to say most of the deaths in this time period, tis sus. (laughs) sus,
0: Uh, And the case was not investigated further, and so the police closed it, which again, sus. So with the nature of these murders, I can't really tell just like one linear, cohesive story. So we're just going to have to talk about individual stories in chronological order. Um, I'm going to start with some cases, some murders that happened outside of Iran, and then we'll go back to Iran. But before that, let's have another little culture break, shall we? Iran is actually the number one nose job capital in the world. Would never guess that. No, me neither. No. They do. They do some like two hundred thousand a year. So nose jobs are Ooh, really popular amongst like the youth as a cosmetic procedure, especially for women. Um, and after they have their procedures, many women will wear, you know, like that little band of white tape. Mm-hmm. They'll wear it yeah. on their nose for like way longer than necessary because, like, the nose job tape is almost a fashion statement. In like, itself. they want
2: people to know. That makes yeah. sense to me.
0: Huh. Sometimes women will just wear the tape even if they haven't had a nose job. I saw a lot of Looks TikTokers so
1: doing that, like, a while back. Yeah. Like, there were a bunch of them.
0: I read an article written by an Iranian-American, and she um, was talking about the nose job thing and, like, what, you know, it having a certain type of nose means to Iranian women. And she, she was like, yeah, uh, in, in the article she talked about how her Halloween costume one year. She wanted to be a Tehran woman for her Halloween costume. So her, her costume, like the, the most important part was the nose tape. <sighs> <laughs> so anyway, back to crime. In the summer of 1989, the leader of the Kurdistan Democratic Party of Iran, Abdulrahman Ghasemlu, went to Vienna to attend some negotiations with Iranian officials. On July 13th, Abdul Raham and his aides met with some Iranian reps at an apartment. During the meeting, shots were fired, killing Abdul Raham and his three aides. The Iranian officials were actually the ones who called the local authorities to report the shooting, but vehemently denied having anything to do with it. Uh, the Austrian police took them in for questioning. And I'm not sure what the story was that they told, but all of the Iranian representatives stuck stuck to it and they all walked free even though the the austrian police were like oh yeah they they did it for sure and i i don't think it's a coincidence that like right after this the iranian delegation was forced to leave austria by the government no yeah and then in august 1989 an outspoken communist opponent to the islamic republic was gunned down in cyprus whoever killed him got away with it and as far as i'm aware there were never any leads and that's the end of that story in, On April 24th, 1990, Iran's very first UN ambassador after the revolution, Dr. Kazem Rajavi, was shot dead in Geneva. Even though he had once been an ambassador for the new Iranian government, he had resigned from his post in order to join the National Council of Resistance, which put a target on his back. And we don't know who his murderer was. Not brought to justice. I'm seeing a trend of... Mm -hmm. unsolved yes another member of the kdpi which was the the kurdish thing and also if you don't know the kurds the kurdish people are the largest ethnic group in the world that don't have their own country and so there are large kurdish populations in several middle eastern countries um and the kurdish people have had a lot of conflict with iran in the past because they want their own country understandably um and so that's why they would be um targets So another member of the KDPI was murdered in 1990, July 1990, in Turkey. His name was Ali Kashefpur and his case also remains unsolved. Again. In September 1990, Efat Kazi, the daughter of a major Kurdish leader, was killed at her home in Sweden when she opened a letter bomb that was meant for her husband, who was more active in the Kurdish separatist movement. Oh my
2: god. That's
1: devastating.
0: Right? And again, unsolved.
1: I mean, they're all devastating. This is fucked up, but like...
0: Yeah. Shit. In April 1991, one of the executive members of the resistance movement, Abdurrahman Boramand, was stabbed to death in the streets of Paris. Just out in the open. In Paris, which is, I don't know if you know this, a busy city.
2: Well, yeah. Paris. <sighs>
0: it's fucking Paris. And an interesting note about the resistance movement is that it was founded in France by the last prime minister to serve under the Shah named Dr. Shapur Bakhtiar. In July 1980, there was an assassination attempt against him at his home in Paris, and I don't know the details of it, but a police officer was killed as well as a neighbor. But on August 7th, 1991, there was a second assassination attempt that was successful. Bakhtiar was stabbed, along with his secretary, by three assailants. Two of them were able to flee back to Iran, but one was caught in Switzerland and sent back to France, where he was put on trial and sentenced to life in prison. But he was released in 2010 on parole, um, and he was sent back to Iran. It was done as, like, an exchange, because Iran had just released a French academic that had been accused of spying. So they were just like, Mm. you give us our guy, we'll give you your guy. There were two murders in Germany... That we know of. The first was the murder of Faridun Farosad, who was a popular singer in Iran. In August 1992, he was murdered in his house in Bonn, Germany. He had been beheaded and his tongue had been cut out.
2: Oh my god. Oh god. These are brutal. uh,
1: And they're sending a message. Oh yeah. To do that to a
0: singer? Big time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also... My apologies if I'm butchering these Persian names. I, I, do, I do not speak even a little bit of Farsi. <laughs> Another German murder happened at a Greek restaurant in Berlin on September 17, 1992. Dr. Sadeg Sharafkandi, who was the leader of the KDPI, and three of his aides were having a late dinner at a restaurant called Mykonos when they were murdered in what was described as a mafia-style attack. Sharafkandi and two of his aides... Died instantly, and the third aide later died at the hospital. Two men were brought to justice for these killings one Iranian and one Lebanese, and they were both sentenced to life in prison in Germany. Germany actually retaliated against Iran for the assassination, though, and as part of the court ruling for this case, they actually issued an international arrest warrant for the then Secretary of Intelligence in Iran because they believed he was the one who ordered the hit, and with the knowledge and approval of the Ayatollah. Uh, I mean, the guy was never arrested, but the whole thing led to some pretty intense European-Iranian relations for a while, because a lot of European countries backed up Germany. So those were some of the notable murders that happened outside of Iran. But there were plenty that happened on home soil as well, so let's go through some of those. And again, like there are at least 80 that we know of, so I'm just going through some of the Either most significant or just ones that actually have details. In the autumn of 1990, a critic of Shi'ism, Syed Khorsou Desharati, was asked by the Ministry of Intelligence to come in for questioning. Syed went in, but he was never seen alive again. Sometime later, his body was found on a rural road with a bullet in his head. Oh my god. Shit, bro. There were also a couple of religiously motivated murders, but the most notable was Father Mehdi Debach, who had been raised Muslim before converting to Christianity, and he did, like he converted before the revolution. In December 1993, the high court sentenced him to death for apostasy, but the rest of the world wasn't exactly cool with that, so after some international pressure, he was released from prison and the charges were dropped. But on July 5th, 1994, his corpse was found in the northern part of the country. Obviously, no one was brought to justice for this one. Uh, And as far as the government was concerned, his murder was justice.
1: That's fucked up.
0: Yeah, man. That's super fucked up. Then there was that letter that I talked about earlier, the one that criticized the censorship in the country, and that was signed by 134 people. It was titled, We Are the Dead. And it sealed the fate for a lot of people that signed it, and a not insignificant number of them died under suspicious circumstances. Yeah. Um, uh. yeah. Uh, there was also the attempted murder of all 21 writers on that bus. They signed A lot of them signed that letter, too. Or maybe even all of them, I'm not sure. One of the most high-profile killings in the chain murders was of Ali Akbar Saithi Sirjan, who was a famous writer, poet, and journalist. He had been completely supportive of the 1979 revolution, but began criticizing the new government after they took power, much to the chagrin of the Ayatollah. Ali wrote extensively about his distaste for the new government, and it was so bad for the government that the Ministry of Culture actually stopped the printing of his second book in March 1994. Oh, shit. Yeah. Imagine, like, imagine... Hating criticism so much that you'll actually use your government powers to stop the printing of a book. Oh, fucking idiot. In March 1994, Ali was arrested, and just eight months later, he died of a heart attack while in prison. Except, he had absolutely no history of any heart problems whatsoever. That sounds about right. Yeah. It also just, this, this might not be relevant, who knows. He had super, super high levels of potassium in his system,
2: which can lead to a heart attack. Not sus at all. Mm. Not sus at all. Ali's family,
0: along with many human rights groups, believe that he was murdered in order to save the government from looking bad for putting a beloved writer on trial. Ali was not the only one to be poisoned, though. On March 17th, 1995... Ahmad Khomeini, that's right, Khomeini, the Ayatollah's youngest son, died of a heart attack just one month after giving a speech in which he denounced the Islamic Republic. And it's believed his he was killed uh, by cyanide poisoning. The Ayatollah's own son. Like, I know Khomeini was dead at that point, but damn. Ugh. At least three other people died of heart attacks in 1995 as well, including an engineer, a translator, and a theater critic. None of them had any heart issues either, like no history of it, and they were all tied to the opposition in one way or another. Now, to be clear, when all of this was going on, no one realized that all of these killings, all of these deaths were connected, at least not like on a large public scale. But there was one set of murders that really blew the whole thing just wide open. Before we get into that, though, let's have one more little palate cleanser because it gets intense here. So, Iranian in, in Iranian society, men and women don't generally interact outside of their families, especially in public. Um, and I don't think this is much as much of a surprise. Uh, this is slowly changing as the younger generation just is kind of tired of all the old rules and it's a really young country actually 30 percent of iran is under 30 that's a
2: crazy young population that (sighs) is a super young population
0: however people obviously still go out and like hang out with their friends um but of the same sex and iranians generally speaking are super affectionate and it's completely normal for women to kiss women and men to ki- to kiss men out in public. Men will even walk around like am and om with their friends or they'll like hold hands. Because Iranians just like to be affectionate with with those they love, even if it's just platonic. And like, can we normalize male friends holding hands everywhere? I agree. I, I love that. Yeah. I really love that. I think it's adorable. I feel like yeah. women will do it somewhat. Uh, but like straight men in the U.S. could never. <laughs> They could never, but it's super common in in Iran. I think we're, we're,
1: I mean, we're seeing, we're seeing some nice changes. Yeah. Slowly though. Just, it just needs to be. Slowly but
0: surely. Quicker. Much quicker. So, one Sunday evening in November 1998, Parastu Forhar sat by her phone waiting for her parents to call her. Which was their weekly routine. Parastu was in Germany and then her parents were in Iran. And like, I get this. I always, like, I'm always waiting by my phone every Saturday afternoon for my parents to call me so we can have like our weekly chat, catch up, stay close. It's usually around the same time. And I feel like most people who live far away from their parents have like a set time reserved in the, like every week to, you know, call back home and, you know, catch up, see what's going on, stay close. Mm -hmm. When
1: the phone finally rang... Sorry? I said, my poor parents. I just called them at random times throughout the day.
2: (laughs) I know my sister calls my mom at random times throughout the day, too. (laughs)
0: When the phone finally rang, Parastow picked it up, but it wasn't her parents on the other line. It was a reporter from the BBC asking her about what happened to her parents because they had been attacked. Oh, my God. No. Confused and concerned, she called her friend in Paris who told her that her parents had
2: been murdered. Oh my god. That sounds like a horrible way to find out. Yeah. Right? Horrible, oh my god. Horrible. Like,
0: you're just waiting for your parents to call. It's totally normal. You talk to each other around the same time every week, and it's a reporter asking about the attack on your parents. Like, what? That's so sad. They were Dariush Forhar and his wife, Parvne Majd Eskarandi and had been stabbed to death in their home. Dariush, 26 times, and Paravne, 25. Oh my god. They had been outspoken opposition leaders who, up until they were killed, had been mostly tolerated, but Paravne had told the Human Rights Watch in New York, quote, We are living with the fear of being killed. Every night when we go to bed, we thank God, the Almighty, for his blessing of living another day, unquote. Their deaths shocked the nation because of how brutal they were. And their deaths got people paying attention. So, when Muhammad Mokhtari, a well-known writer, translator, and, again, outspoken critic of the country's censorship, left his home in Tehran to run some errands just two weeks later... When he didn't return, people were rightfully concerned. The day after he left his house, his body was found at a cement factory, but his family wasn't informed of the discovery for more than a week. For Because
1: were they trying to, like, cover it up or they just didn't care to... Like,
0: like the body was found and reported, but just no one told the family and the family was, like, calling every hospital and, and stuff God. and, yeah. That's horrible. There were more murders, of course, and we're not going to get into all of them. But the difference now was that people were paying attention and the public wanted the murders to stop and for the perpetrators to be brought to justice because, of course, it's fucking scary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was a lot of suspicion that the government was involved. So the Ayatollah, the the new one, this, office, this is Khomeini, not Khomeini. Uh, He started deflecting. First, he said that the country's enemies, in particular Israel, were behind the killings. That didn't make a whole lot of sense. No, because like it was opposition leaders and not supporters being killed. Like, try harder, my guy. (laughs) Seriously. Uh. Next, the government was like, hey, it wasn't us. It was this unknown group that no one has ever heard of. Called pure Mohammedan Islam Devotees of Mustafa Nawab. That is a mouthful. Holy moly. Yeah. They're taking full responsibility for all the murders. How convenient. Oh my gosh. No Look, way. they even they even released a statement. The statement said Of course they did. The statement said quote The revolutionary execution of Dariush Farhar, Paravne Escudari, Mohammed Mokhtari, and Mohammed Jafar Puyande is a warning to all the mercenary writers and their counter value supporters who cherish the idea of spreading corruption and promiscuity in the country and bringing back foreign domination over iran wanting free speech is not the same as wanting foreign domination hot take hot take i don't know if you know this but like you can keep your culture and also have free speech they're not mutually
2: right (laughs) Yeah. yeah it's crazy but that's
0: really all that was said like if the killings were being carried out by this group, the government wasn't making any statement about finding the leaders and arresting them. So people were still living in fear and being left to wonder who was going to be killed next. There were rumors floating around about who else could have done it. Some private citizens, some government officials, some religious leaders, some both combinations of the things, whatever. Eventually, public, fr- public pressure was enough that then-president Khatami, put together a task force to investigate the murders. This task force included the head of the armed forces, the minister of intelligence and one of the president's aides who had a lot of connections throughout the government. Their investigation came to the conclusion that the murders had been ordered and carried out by a gang of intelligence and former intelligence agents led by Saeed Emami, who was the deputy intelligence minister at one point. He was also and at this point still the advisor to one of the like mid ranking clerics in the government, which likely kept him up to date with a lot of the goings on in the government. The task force played it smart, though. Uh, They let it break that they were looking to arrest the gang and Amami, hoping that one of the gang members would break and come to them and confess to the murders uh, in order to really secure Amami's arrest and conviction. And, they got what they wished for, one of the gang members came forward and confessed to everything. On January 6th, 1999, the Ministry of Intelligence shocked the nation when it issued a public statement admitting what its own agents had done. And it said, quote, The despicable and abhorrent recent murders in Tehran are a sign of a chronic conspiracy and a threat to national security. Based on its legal obligations, and following clear directives issued by the Supreme Leader and the President, the Intelligence Ministry, set as a priority, discovering and uprooting the sinister and threatening event. With the cooperation of the specially appointed investigatory committee of the President, the Ministry has succeeded in identifying the group responsible for the killings, has made arrests, and referred their cases to the judiciary. Unfortunately, a small number of irresponsible, misguided, headstrong, obstinate staff within the Ministry of Intelligence, who are no doubt under the influence of rogue, undercover agents and acting towards the objectives of foreign and estranged sources when committing these criminal acts, This was the first time in modern Iranian history that its own intelligence agency admitted to its wrongdoings. Finally. Right? And the crimes committed within the organization. And as a result of this, the head of intelligence resigned the following month, though he, like, he really should have been fired. Yeah, for real. Yeah. So, Imami and 16 of his gang members, including the guy that tried to drive the bus off the the mountain, that guy, they Mm. were all arrested. Good. That guy's fucked up. (laughs) Seriously. Imami, however, was never brought to justice because, get this... He died under mysterious circumstances. Uh, Wow.
2: (laughs) Who Who would have guessed? Yeah.
0: He died on June 20th, 1999. It's said that he had ingested bathroom cleaner in an attempt to take his own life. Uh, He had been rushed to hospital for treatment, but died three days later. He had ultimately died of, wait
2: for it, wait for it, (laughs) a heart attack. Oh my god, no way, and did did he have, like, super high levels of potassium in him? So, a lot of people accepted
0: this as a suicide, but the lawyers for the murdered victims claim that the bathroom cleaner, like, bathroom cleaners that are used in Iran don't contain enough arsenic to actually kill a person, not given how much he had ingested. So, they believe that his death was a murder. Also,
1: there's a lot of statistics on suicide and this. Is not a usual way for a man to commit suicide. No, like it would be an extreme outlier. Yeah. So just no, no. Yeah.
0: And I mean, if you ingest, I want I want to know, like, if you ingest bathroom cleaner, are you more like, is it? Go- are you going to die of a heart attack? Is that is that how like it's no. gonna kill you? Like right. Like it just No, I doesn't think it's the chemicals right.
2: that would like burn your esophagus yeah. and your stomach. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Stuff like that. Like heart attack just doesn't make any sense. No. Unless you went into shock.
2: Yeah. But like yeah. Yeah, I don't know, he man.
0: didn't commit suicide. Many people in Iran believe that Imami wasn't the real leader of the gang and was killed so that he wouldn't reveal the identity of the person that was really giving the orders. And I can believe that 100 percent I feel like Im- Imami was sort of like Kylo Ren. Like, big enough to give orders, but not the head guy, you know? You don't get my Star Wars reference? Right no. <laughs>
1: that's, that's okay. Yeah, no, I didn't that's, either. that's a pop culture reference that I don't understand.
0: <laughs> but also, like, the fact that it was an internal investigation in the government... That's also suspicious. Like, I yeah. am critical of any internal investigation anyway. I don't think investigations should ever be internal, because there's always going to be incentive to protect your own interests, you know? Yeah. yeah. And also the fact, like, the statement that the government issued was cool and all, but I just feel like, to me, it sort of reads like, look, these agents did wrong, they were rogue, uh, but we've caught them, and everything's done, bing, bang, boom, all's good. And that just seems too easy. I would be... then. It's not just because it's Iran. Like, I would be suspicious of any government doing this. Oh, me too. Me too. Yeah. So, of the others who were arrested for their crimes, these were the sentences. I'm not going to read all their names because I've read so many Persian names. I, like, I am i can't keep doing it. I'm sorry. It's just a lot. Um, and also, it doesn't really matter what their names are because they're all pieces of shit. So, there was Imami, but he never got a sentence because he died. Uh, one person was given the death penalty two got four consecutive life sentences three were given two consecutive life sentences one was given 10 years that was the bus driver two were given eight years yeah 10 years that's okay
1: there were like over 20 people on that bus right
0: yeah 21 people
1: you should have gotten life sentences. a lot more than that like no because if he would have been successful
0: it would mm, 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 Mm -hmm. absolutely not sorry continue Two were given eight years, two were given seven years, one was given six years, one was given two and a half years, and then three were acquitted. And, like, that's it, really. Most seem to believe that Imami wasn't the real leader, and I I side with that. Like, it just seems too convenient, honestly. Especially with how closely tied everyone was to the government and how politically motivated all the killings were. And also just, like, internal investigations I don't trust them governments should not investigate themselves police forces should not investigate themselves third party always yeah it just seems too convenient that these murders were being conducted by like a rogue few intelligence agents I just mm. I like I could believe it no but it just doesn't it just doesn't add up for me not at all So that's it that was, that was Iran. Thanks for um, sitting through it. <laughs> Hope you feel okay. Hope you learned something cool about Iran. I really like the, the uh, tea fact. That's my favorite one. I know. That one's so cute. I want to put rock candy in my tea. Apparently, I want to put it in my coffee. I got to go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you want to see pictures from this case, uh, I'll... I don't even know what pictures I'm going to freaking use for this case. (laughs) My god. Uh, But they'll be on our social medias. It's at True Crime INTL on Instagram. Or we have a Facebook group that is really just so active these days. It's awesome. Uh, It's just True Crime International. You just type it in on Facebook. You can find us. A reminder, we are taking a break. This is our last episode until... Like, regular episode until September. Unless you're on our Patreon, in which you're fine. And... That's it. Uh, any parting words of wisdom?
1: Um, get drunk responsibly. <laughs> <laughs> just got to say that one again.
0: <laughs> Eat an edible if it's legal where you live.
1: Mm, do that. <laughs> um, wow. These cannot be our parting words of advice. Um,
2: <laughs> stay safe. Stay educated. Stay safe. Stay educated. Stay yeah. vigilant.
1: Stay sassy
2: stay beautiful no okay we need to go (laughs) no Uh,
1: i do not accept this we hope that you uh learned something new uh there was a lot uh there so you probably did and we hope you enjoyed your stay here at true crime international we'll see you Uh, we'll see you soon
0: see you in in september September. Bye. Bye. bye
2: That was exhausting.